This is an ABC podcast. You get a message from a mate. It says, hey, found your doppelganger with a pic of someone who objectively does look heaps like you. It's funny, bit weird, especially because you know you're not related to the person. But what if I told you that you share more with that stranger than just the same jawline or the same eyes? Actually, you might be really connected through DNA. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, you're going to hear about a new study that reveals just how similar we might be to people who look like us, and not just physically. Also, a huge job summit is kicking off in Canberra tomorrow. So what's in it for young Australians? We'll let you know. First, though. Hack. The statistics are shocking. Half of women in their 20s report having experienced sexual violence on Triple J. We're getting into something really serious now and a bit of a trigger warning, we are about to discuss sexual abuse because some full-on stats have come out today that reveal an awful reality. Most women in their 20s have experienced sexual violence, more than half. This world-first research also reveals people who experienced sexual violence as a child are twice as likely to experience it again as an adult. But the study also includes a bunch of ways that we could start to improve these statistics. And it comes at a really important time because the new federal government is putting together its next big plan to end violence against women and children. Here's Hack's political reporter, Georgia Hitch. What this research shows us is that um, sexual violence actually has really profound implications for not just the physical and mental well-being of women, but also their financial security and even their educational outcomes. Padma Raman is the CEO of ANROSE, which is a research organisation tasked specifically with looking at women's safety in Australia. She's talking about a new report they've released which found rates of sexual violence may be higher than anyone previously thought. Some of the more shocking stats are that 51% of women in their 20s have experienced sexual violence, with that number climbing to above 70% for women who identify as bisexual or live with a disability or illness. Across the board, the figures are higher for younger generations than older ones, and Padma says it's not entirely clear why, but they have a few ideas. It could well be that our understandings of sexual violence are... Uh, uh, getting better and women are more able to actually call it out. But it could also be that it's happening more to women in their younger lives. This research is actually the first of its kind. It was done over 20 years to get a really good understanding of the ongoing impacts sexual violence can have on people. It found that if someone experienced it as a child, they were twice as likely to experience it again as an adult. So I'm sure it's no surprise that the research also showed women who experience sexual violence are more likely to have mental health and substance abuse problems and be under financial stress. Natalie Townsend is one of the researchers who put the report together. If women who have these experiences are less likely to have financial resources available to them, they are less likely to access mental health services, which would help them. If we can subsidise those services for these women, then they will have a much better outlook for their health and wellbeing moving forwards. Making services free is one of the eight policy recommendations that's set out in the report that ANROS hopes the government will take on board. But as Natalie points out, it's not just the government that can help. I know for one that I'm pretty sick of having to keep talking about sexual violence, but it turns out having the conversation can actually make a difference. Another really positive part of this research was that 
women who had access to social support, which is just even small things like having someone to listen to them, they do much better than women who don't have access to social support. So the very fact that we are having these conversations is really helpful for people who have already had these experiences. Hack on Triple J. Georgia Hitch there with that story. I want to get into this one a bit more now and ask some questions of the government. With me is Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth. Minister, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Great to be with you. Most women in their 20s have experienced sexual violence. That's what this research is telling us. It's also telling us, though, as we've just heard, what we can do to address it. Things like making health services for women who've experienced this kind of violence free. It's 2022. Why don't we already have these kinds of supports in place? Well, look, obviously, um, this is a really shocking statistic. It's really, really concerning. And um, I am working very closely with my state and territory colleagues to look at what the next national plan looks like in terms of um, supporting um, women, children and sexual violence as part of that. But I think we need to actually also focus not just on uh, services, which are critically important, but actually prevention as well. Will the government adopt this recommendation to make health services free or subsidise for women who've experienced sexual violence? Because it seems to be a very clear way of helping this issue. Yeah, well, look, as I said, we're working on the national plan to look at violence against women and children. That is both state government and federal government working together. We'll look through this report, look through the recommendations and um, actually, you know, obviously work through them as part of our deliberations on the national plan. Okay, so this national plan that we're talking about is to reduce violence against women and children. Where's it up to? Look, we've had some productive meetings with the states and territories and we want to progress this as soon as possible. Of course, after that becomes the actions that each state and territory in the Commonwealth will take and we'll continue to work through that. It's really, really important that though with this national plan that we're not just talking about services, we've got to talk about prevention. And there's a you know, really important campaign out there at the moment called Stop It at the Start. And what that is about is promoting respectful relationships. And so uh, supporting respectful relationships is about having conversations, it's about calling out bad behaviour and it's about talking with children really about what respectful relationships look like, whether they see that on TV, at school. So I, I would really encourage people to have a look at that campaign and look at how we promote more respectful relationships in in our community. And there are some really, you know, important and helpful campaigns out there. But I'm just wondering with this national plan, do we know when we're going to see it? Is it going to be by the end of the year? Well, look, we're working as hard as we can to finalise that national plan. We do have to get states and territories committing to that. So I'm working very keen. I've been in the job 12 weeks um, and so I'm working very, very hard. We've already had our first meeting and we want to see this. But it hasn't stopped me actually taking action. Uh, I think the 1-800-RESPECT hotline, which I would urge people to do and to call if they ever feel uh, they need uh, who have experienced violence and harassment is a really good resource. Um, firstly, I'd say that from the 1st of July this year, um, 
uh, people can call if they've experienced sexual harassment at work. This is a big issue that a lot of women talk about. So they can actually call that number. And from July 2023, we're also looking at providing SMS and video call services. So once again, really important uh, reporting um, uh, services and, and support out there. We've got a message from someone who says, I work in mental health and referring to specialist trauma services like sexual assault centres takes forever. My clients wait months and months, even up to a year after their assault. What are we doing to address this? It's a huge issue that people who need a help just, and they're trying to get it, they can't. Yeah, look, it is a really, really concerning and there are a number of services out there. But I think the other uh, issue is we need to embed better trauma-informed services across all services. But um, people I are think... waiting a long time. Like, they, 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 the waiting lists are ridiculous oh. and that's what we're hearing. Yeah, look, I understand that. And like I said, I've been working with my state and territory colleagues. Um, I, I, the federal government doesn't run specialised sexual assault services. Um, we work with the states and territories. But what I'm saying is that most services uh, should be able to be have better trauma-informed. And I think that is really, really important um, that we have trauma-informed services right across the board so that uh, whether it's, uh, it's other mental health services, that they are, are better at dealing with people that come in that have had this experience. What about young women in particular? Because as we've been hearing, you know, young women are so deeply affected by this. In the national plan, is there going to be a specific focus on young women? Well, look, as I said, we're working through the national plan. I will be releasing it. But I can tell you that there will be, um, of course, a focus on sexual violence, on about how we respond to sexual violence, that some of the causes of sexual violence, which is a lack of respect and actually dealing with it. And so I think um, that's really, really important. And I think, um, you know, for example, through the New South Wales government, we provided a boost. Uh, of $20 million to help victim survivors of sexual violence. So uh, that has been a, a way that we've delivered services through states and territories and we'll continue to work with the states and territories around this. Um, really important to have the, the expertise out there and the training out there. So we're going to continue to work on this. And just quickly, I mean, Minister, the government's got this Jobs and Skills Summit that's happening tomorrow. One of the big um, things that it's focusing on is improving women's participation. Is this kind of research that we've been hearing about today going to be considered in all of that? Because obviously the flow-on effects of financial stability are so, so important. Look, um, the impact of um, violence on women is something that will be, you know, aired at the job summit. And it's one of the things of why we actually made it a critical priority piece of legislation to get 10 days of paid family and domestic violence leave as a national standard. So it doesn't matter where you work, it doesn't matter if you're a casual worker, um, you can access those 10 days of uh, paid family and violence leave. And we've also been um, improving the escaping domestic violence payment or escaping violence payment, which supports people as well. So the impact does, as the report said, have wide uh, reaching consequences 
consequences. And I think um, this is a really important area to to concentrate our attention on. All right. Well, there's a lot to focus on. We're going to keep checking in. Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth, I mean, I know you're saying that you've got to work with states and territories and there's still a bit of work to be done on the national plan, but people are going to be expecting to see something soon and that's what we're hearing. Thank you very much for speaking with us on Hack. No worries. Thank you. And remember, if you uh, need some support, if that's raised any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 Respect as well. Some messages coming through. Someone says, I've been assaulted and I can barely afford to see a therapist once a month. My mental health is crumbling terribly. Something needs to change. And another person, why does everything fall back on teachers to teach? I'm a teacher and I'm overwhelmed about how much the government drops on us to teach. That message from Shannon in Newey. Hack! In that one picture, there are lots of weird parts of our faces that you would absolutely say look very, very similar, if not the same. On Triple J. Is there anything weirder than seeing your doppelganger? They're walking down the street, lining up for a coffee, or in a news story. That's even weirder. Maybe they're presenting Hack right now. If I'm your doppelganger, hit me up. I don't know. A lot of us get sent pics from mates of people that actually look nothing like us. (laughs) But sometimes you are blown away. Wow, I could be related to that person. Well, some new research has revealed you probably share a lot more than just a physical resemblance with your doppelganger. Your similarities might go to the very core of who you are as a person, your DNA. It's fascinating stuff. Let's get the rundown from an expert. Dr Ian Stephen is a senior lecturer of psychology at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. And he's with us now. G'day, Ian. Thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Hi. What does this new research that's centering around doppelgangers, what does it actually tell us? Well, we've always kind of known that there are people who look very similar but uh, are not related to each other which is obviously what a doppelganger is. But up until now, we basically thought that it was just a coincidence that they look so similar. But what this new study is uh, showing us is that actually they look so similar because they happen to share a lot of the same DNA. And that can be even though they're from different backgrounds, maybe from different countries and those sorts of things, there are genetic similarities. Yeah, so one way to think about this is if you think about the the gene for blue eyes now the the gene for blue eyes appeared in a single human about 3,000 years ago so everyone with blue eyes is actually descended from that one human but of course on the way like that person passed on the gene for blue eyes to to their children who then passed on to their children who then passed on to their children but every time they passed it on to the next generation obviously those genes were all shuffled about with the other parents genes so if you take two random people who have blue eyes today what you'll find is it's very unlikely that they have the same parents or the same grandparents or the same great-grandparents and so on but they are do all share ancestry with that one person 3,000 years ago. But those blue blue eye genes have ended up in those two people today via very different routes. So we're all related. Um, it's just a very big family tree. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So if you go back kind of far enough, they're all, all related. But then, uh, of course, as we're each generation um, 
were shuffling the genes from two parents together, you can end up with genes basically being what we call recombined in such a way that two people who are actually really quite distantly related can end up with pretty similar combinations of genes. Another interesting part of this research for me was the part that described how people who look the same might have similar habits or lifestyles, whether it be um, smoking or even in terms of physical appearance, height and those sorts of things. What does that tell us? So there's been a kind of a, well, there there still is a a big debate among scientists about how much of uh, behaviour is owing to genes or nature, if you like, and how much is owing to the environment. So that's things like our upbringing and, and so on. One of the ways they test this is by looking at people, again, who actually look very similar to each other. So uh, identical twins look identical because they are they have identical DNA. But some identical twins, are, or most identical twins, I guess, are brought up by their parents in the same household as each other, whereas others are brought up uh, in different households because they've been separated at some stage, either been adopted by different families or, or even sometimes like switched at birth um, in the hospital. Uh, so by comparing kind of how similar or how different those twins who are raised together are from those twins who, who are raised apart, you can actually start to figure out how much of the differences in behavior and in personality and so on is it owes, is owing to um, genes and how much is owing to the environment. And what this study is finding is that even those uh, individuals who are doppelgangers, so they look similar but are not related, that actually they tend to share behaviours at rates higher than we would expect if it was just caused by the environment. So we're finding that it, um, there seems to be some linkage between these genes for appearance and genes for certain types of behaviour and personality, which I think is really cool. That's crazy to think about and it just shows how much we've still got to learn about all of this and how much research there's um, got to be invested into this area. It's so interesting. I'm wondering if if that is the case and doppelgangers might share um, similar lifestyle habits, does it mean they could also be at risk of the same illnesses, conditions, those sorts of things? Yeah, definitely. So if you think about lung cancer, for example, like if lung cancer is caused partly by behavior, so smoking, but also partly by genetics. So if you don't smoke, you are very, very unlikely to get lung cancer. Whereas if you do smoke, if you've got one set of genes, then you are almost guaranteed to get lung cancer. And if you do smoke, but you have a different set of genes, then it's much less likely that you're going to end up with lung cancer. So these doppelgangers, what we're seeing from this study is that they actually share more of their DNA than we were previously expecting. And also they're sharing more of their behaviors. So if you've got people who have similar genes, so say the the genes for increased likelihood of lung cancer and similar similar behaviors, so therefore say are more likely to to smoke than the average person, then, yeah, they're they're very much going to be potentially at higher risk of lung cancer. 
Is this area of research something that's quite popular that we have a lot of scientists, experts working on, or is it um, a relatively new area of study? I know there's probably been a lot of research into twins in the past, but doppelgangers, people who look the same but aren't related. Like you say, that there's been a lot of research into twins in the past because they're such a good way of figuring out what is down to genetics and what's down to environment and what proportions and so on. Doppelgangers, there's some research, but it's mostly been kind of treated as a a bit of a, a curiosity. It's kind of a, look, what are the chances of these two people looking so similar? But there's not really been a whole lot of scientific study into, well, why they look similar or um, what we can tell about genetics or about behavior or about appearance because of it. But I think this study potentially might lead to other scientists figuring out how we might use them, use doppelgangers in a similar way to to how we study twins to find out more about appearance and behavior. And as a kind of research psychologist and a nerd, anything that does that, I'm all in favor of. And Ian, have you got a doppelganger? Has anyone ever said to you, oh, I saw someone that looks exactly like you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my mates um, kind of take the mickey out of me because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was a, a guy on the front page of the university website who looked exactly like me except Indian. And there was also a guy in there, um, I don't know, people who are as old as me right, might remember kind of saucy chat lines that, that used to exist and you used to get ads for them on late night TV and there was a guy in one of those. Who, uh, <laughs> you sure exactly it wasn't like you? Well. You sure it wasn't you, Ian? <laughs> well, I get it too. Everyone who sees someone with a ginger beard says, I saw your doppelganger the other day. I think we need a, I think we need a more scientific way of classifying doppelgangers, if I'm going to be honest. But look, it's an interesting area of research and one that you're right across and we really love to learn more about. Dr. Ian Stephen from Nottingham Trent University in the UK. Thanks so much for filling us in. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, I've got a fantastic photo of a doppelganger of Dave Woodhead on my phone. That's from Anthony. I'll have to see that one. Um, Bronnie and Bendigo says, I have one of those faces every few months someone tells me I look like so I look like so and so or they think they've already met me once two separate people I know were on the same Kentucky tour and later told me someone on it looked like me just a generic white girl face I guess. Hack. The biggest challenge is that we've got ridiculously low unemployment and we've got you know a, a, a real shortage in key areas. On Triple J. Hey something pretty huge is kicking off tomorrow Australia's Jobs and Skills Summit. It relates to all of us. we got to work. And as so many of you have been telling us over the past few months, it is a struggle. Side hustles, insecure work, the cost of getting skilled up. The Prime Minister's hoping that this summit's going to help governments, businesses, unions, the community figure out a way to get you better wages, get us more productive, figure out what we're going to do about a massive skills shortage. I'm wondering what you think we need to do to address these big issues. Young Australians, tell me, what should be a priority at this job summit? What would you bring up if you could be there? Because it's actually pretty exclusive. Just over 100 people have been invited from all types of industries and sectors. Luckily, we've got one of them with us now. Yasmin Poole is a writer and youth advocate. Hey, Yasmin, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, thanks for having me. Well done on getting the ticket, firstly, to the Job Summit. What are you going to be doing there? 
So essentially tomorrow, it's a two-day-long summit, and we're going to be gathering at Parliament House, and it's essentially a discussion between government officials, so the Prime Minister and ministers will be there, premiers will be there, unions, businesses, and civil society to talk all things employment and wages. Okay. And what's pretty interesting about the summit is that it also seeks to basically talk about gender equality, climate change in the context of employment. So some pretty big stuff that will ultimately lead to an employment white paper after the summit. So yeah. setting the government's agenda. Yeah, there's a few different areas that are on the agenda, like you said. Are there many young people going that you that you know of? Because you'd think, like, youth, if we're talking about the future, the future of skills, the future of jobs. Um, like, are lots of other youth advocates like you heading along? I wish that would be the case, but I've had a look at the attendee list, which has also been published publicly. And there are a couple of youth organisations attending. So AAC and the Y Australia will be attending. But in terms of people who come from my generation, so Gen Z, I don't seem to see anyone. I could be wrong, but I think I'm definitely one of the only, if not the only, person in the 20s there. So, mm. I mean, that's a bit of a shame. That's a bit of a missed opportunity, in my opinion. Yeah, and no doubt the playlist will be terrible then, of course, as well. But no, honestly, like it would, it would be so, um, so much better to have a lot of young people included. But luckily, you're going to be there. What do you think the biggest priorities are for young people that need to be addressed at this job summit, Yasmin? Well, it's hard to narrow it down to, you know, top three or something like that. I've had so many messages from young people talking about their experiences, but I think a huge one is wage stagnation and casualisation. You combine that with the fact that the cost of living is going up. You know, I was even the fact that I was went to get a coffee yesterday and it was like six or seven dollars, and this is our new reality. Um, but also things like having a safety net during university and also high school and looking for graduate positions. So things like youth allowance and actually having affordable housing and accommodation, especially during that time. But I also think it's really important that the government does things like invest in jobs for the future, like climate tech. It repeals the previous government's actions around increasing tech debt, especially around the humanities and those kind of degrees, and also supporting young people to know their rights. Often, and I say the majority of us don't get much information around our rights and bargaining and unions. So that's really important as well. Yeah, that's the thing, just being informed and and knowing what, what you are entitled to. I want to go to a caller now. We've got Ben on the line. Ben's a flight attendant. Hey, Ben, what, what would you like to see addressed at this big national meeting? Well, I've got to say that, you know, for, for all of my colleagues and I, the last few years have been incredibly tough. You know, we've had up to two and a half years of, of being stood down and having to navigate into other jobs. Um, so what I'd really like to see is, is a bit of collaboration between the governments as well as workers as well, because it's, it's not just the airline businesses who have suffered. You know, people like myself and my colleagues, we've, like I said, we've done it so hard and we've had to make so many massive changes in our lives. And just by being able to see what's happened as the airlines have recovered and the industry's picked up, we've been able to see just how ruthless that employers can be when it comes to um, restricting workers' conditions and, and particularly wages as well. I really like what Yasmin said as well about really needing to, um, to have a wage increase and, you know, about that generational change. This, I think this, um, this Jobs and Skills Summit is going to provide such a great opportunity for, for the people of our generation to be able to, to make really incredible changes I mean, if you look at what happened previously at the 1983 Economic Summit, 
what one one of the biggest outcomes for workers um, at that was the introduction of superannuation and even Medicare. Yeah, and, you know, like superannuation uh, is such an important factor about working lives. Of and, course, and, Ben, and and, uh, and as you say, like uh, there's an opportunity here for real reform, and we saw that in the past at the previous Jobs Summit. Hey, thanks for calling in, and I can tell that you're really informed and really excited. I think Ben's already read the program for the Jobs Summit, Yasvin. I'm wondering, we've heard um, a, a, a few rogue ideas being thrown around lately. Can I ask you something, Yasmin? Uh, something pretty rogue I saw this morning. The Retailers Association says teenagers as young as 13 should be put to work to help with a labour shortage in Australia. What do you think of that when you look at that at first glance? You're a person who speaks on behalf of young people across the country often. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I thought it was pretty shocking, to be honest. And if we can cast our minds back to when we were 13, that's really young. You know, that's around, I'd say, year eight. Um, and I think to put, you know, 13-year-olds in something like, you know, retail hospitality, that's really high-stress positions with often people that aren't that nice to you, that don't treat you very well, and there's a serious risk of exploitation around wages, around treatment, and also, you know, expecting a 13-year-old to advocate their rights to a boss is pretty ridiculous. And I think it points to a, a deeper issue with employment and wages is that young people often bear the brunt and are the people in the group that gets exploited when it comes to businesses and saving costs. And, you know, I think there's a lot more that can be done around improving working conditions, you know, things like increasing pay, um, having more part-time rather than casual positions. Like there's a lot of other structural things we could do first. So I think using, you know, young people and using children in this instance I think, honestly, it will just lead to exploitation. So I'm not in favour of it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that's going to be discussed at this job summit. I saw stuff about a youth job guarantee. We've spoken about that on Hack before, about what that would mean. It would basically make sure that every young person who registered as unemployed would have access to a job or a paid internship or training opportunity. Other countries do it, and some politicians want to see that happen here. Look, we won't know what's going to come out of it until it happens. Uh, Yasmin Poole, right? and youth advocate. She'll be there. Thanks so much for joining us on Hack. We'll check in to see how you go. Thanks. And to anyone who wants to put a suggestion, please feel free to message me on social media. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks again to Yasmin Poole. And we'll be figuring out what's going on at this job summit all the way through the week. So stay with us. We'll let you know of any big developments. That's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.